Welcome to the 1980s movie Graveyard, the show that lets forgotten movies have one last chance to shine. Now sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Hello, retro movie lovers, and welcome back to the movie Graveyard. We got some good, uh, we're putting the shovels down. We're not going to fully exhume a film, a particular film today, but we're going to kind of dig around. I got Trev here. Trev, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Goat. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we're just going to like take the shovels and just do like one quick little stab into the into the graves. Yeah. <laughs> we're just going to test the <laughs> Grave first. diggers need breaks too, you know? Exactly. We thought we would bring you uh, guys a slightly different um, uh, topic today. One, surprisingly, I can't believe we haven't done yet, but it makes total sense to do a, a show of this type. Yeah, it's funny because we're saying it's like a break for us, but for the listeners, it might be more work because, you know, a typical yeah. episode, they're like, oh, that's one episode or that's one movie I can go check out. We're going to give them a bunch today. That's right. So these are some good recommendations. And maybe it's good to do a show like this because uh, movie watching does seem to be up in this day and age. So you never know. We could be giving yeah. some good recommendations here. What, what else is there to do? You know? <laughs> exactly. Watch sport. Oh, wait, no, never mind. <laughs> By the way, Trev, I know you're you're excited for that uh, NBA to come back in a couple of weeks. Uh, hopefully, uh, the other fifty percent of the league doesn't test positive before <laughs> before they can tip. <laughs> yeah. They can't even get into the what they call it, the the Disney bubble where they're going to safely play all the basketball games. The problem is, is everybody at the uh, individual practice facilities they already got Corona, so. Yeah, I'm 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 really excited for movies to start production again, and uh, you know, instantly get shut down in week one when one crew member gets COVID nineteen. I I like how people are like come up with rules like you stand here and this person stands here, and then you put the thing on the table here and nobody touches it here, and the cameraman must be X amount away with a, a mobile remote uh, video assist. It's just, no, 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 it's it's going to be yeah. gone in a day. <laughs> So we're gonna end up with like a lot of movies with a lot of like wide angle lenses, very yeah. far away sh- cinematography. You know how like you know to save money, like around the time whatever it was, ten twelve years ago, like when Par- uh, Paranormal Activity came out, and it was like oh found footage, it's so economical. Now there's gonna be movies about like spying on people, <laughs> where it's yeah. like two people thirty feet apart having a conversation in a desert, and the whole movie is just a guy out there with a telescope. That would be like the gimmicks they build in. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I really this do... is a good time for Gus Van Sant to get his like Jerry franchise back. You know? Oh God! You, you, you know that is kind of funny because like as we all know, you know the the drive-in scene is a little more vibrant now than it has been in yeah. summers past. But, but yeah, but Gus Van Sant he can totally you know every you know people. It's funny how like three or four years ago people were like let let the drive-ins die when they were, they all had to be forced to convert to digital. They're like whatever, it's a relic of the past. Let it die. Movie theaters, mm-hmm. who cares? We got streaming, and now I feel like people got so much damn streaming coming outside their their ears they can't wait to go to the drive-in again. <laughs> Yeah, if there's like any like silver lining on this, and there's not many, but no. the the return of the drive-in in a big way this summer has been a pretty cool story. Yeah, yeah, I want to dive into the the topic here, but uh, I I love the topic of quarantine watches. So, Trev, do you have just one recent quarantine watch that you did that was interesting? Oh, I didn't know you were going to spring that on me. Let me see. Uh, you know what? I have that handy uh, letterboxed account which Uh-oh. I can go take a look at. And uh, can you plug into- that? Oh. Can you plug that? Is like there a way to, that they can look up your particular letterbox to read? Your sure, shit? you can just look up uh, Trevor Snyder on Letterboxd, uh, or I believe I think uh, yeah, it's just my regular name on there, Trevor Snyder. Um, 
feel free to follow me if you want to see my reviews or whatever. I don't know. I don't know why anyone would, but um, it's interesting. I, like, like I was yeah. gonna say, I don't know how you get to it though, because I just get to it because obviously we're Facebook friends. You know, I don't right. have to. I don't have to do the www dots and all that because you know I'm yeah, special. No, it's, it's, I got it like that. Com, um, but box with no e, so it's just b o x d. Yeah, it's a weird um, site. But it's a cool site. I would yeah. recommend it for people if they don't know about it. It's just it allows you to, uh, you know catalog and rate and maybe review if you want write a review for every yeah. movie you watch about the year uh it's fa- it's very handy for me at the end of the year to just remind myself of what i saw when i want to make my year-end lists and things like that um and of course you can create a watch list of things you want to see or um but yeah in terms of like things i've recently watched i mean the one i'll give the biggest shout out to i don't know if you've heard anything about this goat speaking of things that were uh released to drive-ins and uh getting a little bit more attention just because of a landscape where there's less big movies to compete with was uh the vast of night uh-uh Tell me Have you heard of this? No. So this is a, a new like indie sci-fi film from a director named uh, Andrew Patterson, who uh, I believe he co-wrote it and uh, directed it. It's his first feature. And it's uh, it takes place in like, the 1950s, and it's basically like a War of the Worlds kind of riff, where it's this small New Mexico town, and it's about these two teenagers, uh, one of whom is like works at the local radio station, and the other one who is like the, uh, the phone operator in the town. And one night during where like everybody in town is at the local high school uh, basketball game, he's doing his radio broadcast and she's not operating the phones. And she hears this like mysterious signal kind of like interrupt his radio broadcast. She calls him and tells him, hey, there was some kind of strange sound I recorded. You want me to play it for you? He's like, yeah, of course, because they're both really interested in like audio things. And they decide to like play the sound on the radio and ask if anyone knows what it is. And then somebody calls it and says, well, I, I know what it was. I worked in the military and. We had to go somewhere and kind of, you know, we were burying this what seemed to be a spaceship. And we heard that sound. It's not just like that. So that sets off this chain of events. And it's one of those, you know, it's like it all takes place in this one night. It's all about, you know, what's going on in this town? Why is this this strange alien signal? The storyline is nothing you haven't seen before. But why this movie is getting a lot of attention and why I loved it and why I'll heavily recommend it is just the the filmmaking is just so assured. And it's, uh, you know, it's a movie that's the dialogue is like really – on target with like making these teens likable and sound like period realistic. Um, there's this r- amazing tracking shot that kind of goes through the entire town. So he actually filmed this and he found this like small Texas town. I think it was Texas, uh, even though he was in New Mexico. He found this small town. He actually got all the residents of the town to kind of get involved and act as his crew since it's a very low budget movie. And this town like looks very old fashioned. So he's got this one shot where he basically hooked up cameras to like little remote control cars and stuff and it runs throughout the entire town. Uh, a lot of the, like the tension and mood of the film is played off of just the audio and sound because, like I said, it's a lot of them just listening to recordings and talking to people on the phone. But it's actually there's moments that are really chilling. You really get pulled into the story. So yeah, like in terms of just like that kind of first feature where you watch it and go, man, I'm really gonna pay attention to this director now. This is definitely one of those, and you can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. Amazon ended up snagging it up, and it's on there. Nice. Nice. But it also did have a, it also had a release this year. I know it played at some drive-ins uh, a few months ago. So that actually sounds right up my alley, actually, because um, I kind of got suckered in. I don't know if I had told you this, Trev, but I started watching that new uh, War of the Worlds uh, this show. And, oh yeah, uh, how is that? <laughs> I, th- I believe I'm seven episodes in, and the first like four, I was digging the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. And and then the last two, I feel like I, I hit a road bump. All of a sudden, it's less about the machinations of this alien invasion that they're trying to explain. Because it's really good, though, in terms of, like, it's like a multi-national like national cast. Like, 
like part of it follows like basically like uh french special forces who are kind of you know guarding this this one of the few scientists left who kind of understands what's going on and then you have mm -hmm. a whole other side story where you have gabriel burns as a uh, as a more uh, medical um guy who's, who's who's researching the biology of the aliens and like what's going on but i mean i was like man you want to talk about rock hard boners i was all about this show and then the, these last two episodes uh there was a hit a roadblock and i hope it can recover but it just we get we got into some weird uh incest <laughs> storylines <laughs> okay and, and then after that episode the second one was all about the uh the uh because because there's certain people that because there's there's like constantly i guess you could get, say like a transmission that's going on that uh uh the way the aliens are communicating or however you they're still figuring out but like there's a blind girl who can see again and she understands the transmission and she's kind of on the same wavelength as the aliens and now there's this uh very kind of dark side evilish child well he's not a child he's like 15 16 years old but he was a product of incest and he's also on the aliens wavelength and uh I think I got about three episodes left of this first season, and I, I'll be honest, I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping it can recover and and be as strong as the first few episodes, but uh, it went from being a strong recommend to the, these last two episodes. I don't know where the hell it's going. I mean, ever since Game of Thrones, you got to have incest in your show. You, you, you know? got to have incest. You got to, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, there's a little nice, uh, because uh, Vast of Night is so clearly War of the Worlds inspired, there's even a nice little Easter egg where the radio station he works at, the, the call letters are... Uh, W-O-T-W. Oh, nice. So I thought that was a, a nice little touch, yeah. And then the other thing I, uh, just for this kind of, the audience of this show, I believe they'd appreciate it. Some of them probably have already checked this out. Um, Keeping to Amazon Prime, things you can watch on there. Uh, there's a pretty good documentary on there. Goat, I don't know if you've checked it out yet, called In Search of the Last Action Heroes. No, no. Yeah, it's a documentary that actually kind of goes through and tracks like the evolution of the American action film. Not even American, but just kind of like um, it mostly covers like American, but it kind of you know goes global too. But it's just tracking the action genre, and then like it really it kind of really flies through the early history of the action genre, and then it really digs its heels in and concentrates primarily on the '80s and early '90s uh, action uh, run, and you know kind of goes through. And I was pretty impressed. Like you could say that maybe it's. A little longer than it needs to be because it's I think it's a little over two hours, but it really does cover kind of every big action movie and every big action star you can think of. And I was really excited to see if it even, if it even has like a little section on Cynthia Rothrock, you know, like nice. it gives props where props are due. Um, goes into people like Michael Dudikoff and you know then near the end like scott atkins is one of the people featured in it like heavily and so of course not only is he being interviewed but it also gets to like his modern contributions to the genre. Um, but it's the kind of thing I know would be right up your alley goat. Cause it's just like covering all the films we like. And I was surprised at how, I guess from what I understand, this was a documentary that was kind of crowdsourced. Oh. Um, but I was impressed with the, the amount of like talking heads they actually got for it. You know, none of like the giant stars, but I mean, Shane Black is in there. And like I said, Scott Atkins is in there, you know, Cynthia Rothrock shows up. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of cool people. Vernon Wells is in there talking about both the road warrior and being the bad guy in commando. So yeah, it's, there's some pretty cool stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that actually sounds cool. Yeah, Atkins is a guy I was championing for for a long time, and uh, you know, and I don't I don't know too much about it. like I'm I'm ashamed to admit that like he's kind of like a weird um, blank spot for me. I mean, obviously I saw him in Expendables too, and I've caught you know little bits and pieces of his stuff, 
but he comes across as so likable in this. And then, yeah. I, then I ended up watching some other stuff with him on YouTube. And I was like, yeah, I do want to kind of check this guy out more just because he seems like someone worth supporting, you know? Yeah, for sure. And uh, he, there's usually a couple of his movies at all times streaming on Netflix. If anybody mm-hmm. wants to look up Atkins on there. Um, I won't say his movies are like hit or miss because I haven't seen a ton of them. I've seen maybe six of his flicks. And they're all good quality that I saw. Like, he's not, you know, he's he's... He's in that director video world, but he's he's a cut above some of the like the really like you know like his movies are pretty good for what they are. Um, but but I know exactly what you mean about the personality. Like he, I, I have to keep watching his flicks, but uh, I don't think there's been one that I've seen at least that really capitalized. Like he, they usually kind of cast him very strongly in the kind of silent stoic type, you know. And I really don't know why because yeah. there's a lot more there personality wise, you know. Yeah, I wish I could remember the name off the top of my head. You might know. I, I know he did one. I believe he wrote it, too. That was I heard it was like a little bit more like a comedic action. And people like mm-hmm. really seemed to like that one. Um, that was the one I wanted to check out. It's escaping me now. But Was it Gringo? Or El Gringo? No, no, no. I'm sure I could find it. I know that was a semi-popular one of his like maybe three or four years ago. But yeah, I would recommend it. I mean, they're definitely straight up like almost canon style flicks, but I would de- I would definitely yeah. recognize recommend uh, at least his two ninja flicks. It's literally just called Ninja and then I think Ninja 2 yeah. those are good. Yeah. Um it's very stylistically bizarre but with like lots of flash flat like literally there's like a 12 minute flash scene in it, but he did a Universal Soldier movie, which was kind of interesting to see him go against uh Van Damme and um and Dolph Lundgren, that was kind of a bizarre and interesting movie. Um, uh, I still haven't seen his Hard Target too, which I definitely want to check out. He did one of his kind of first breakthrough ones. Was he? I want to say I could be wrong about this. It, it, I want to say it was called Assassination Games, but I could be wrong. But there's one early on where uh, it's like dueling assassins going at each other with him and Van Damme as well. That was pretty damn decent. But yeah, Ooh. and uh, the one the one I'm talking about is called um, Accident Man. Okay, okay, I've heard of that, but yeah, I haven't That's, seen it. It's got, I'm looking at it now, and I mean, this I would definitely check it out. It's Scott Adkins, Ray Stevenson, uh, Michael J. White, Ray Park, David Paymer. <laughs> for some, wow. I don't know what Dave Paymer's doing there, but and uh, Ashley Green. So, I mean, you know, a decent cast for that size movie, I suppose. And he has done some, um, without like looking it up and stuff, he has done some, some stunt work for major stars. Like, uh, I know it's a movie that, you know, people don't really like, but... I think the best scene of it, kind of, if you watch the end of X-Men Origins Wolverine and they have the weird Deadpool that's like Ryan Reynolds with his face sewn up, you know what I'm talking about, Trev? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The actual action in those scenes is mostly Scott Atkins. So, okay, yeah. 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 But for sure. I'll, I'll always take a second to plug Scott Atkins. Uh, I got a wacky quarantine watch, Trev, and I hope you've sure. seen this. Uh, this was a storied, kind of fabled... Um, movie from the early 90s days of uh, reading Fangoria and I never was able to see it and then like I finally uh I finally uh, caught it this past week um the last week of June talking about to uh <laughs> Highway to Hell have you seen this track Oh uh, yes I I, oh, I loved Highway to Hell back in the day that was uh, I used to like that was definitely a movie that was always on cable late at night Yeah yeah and I would catch it a lot back then so yeah, I caught. I, caught I, it. I haven't seen it since I was a, like a teenager, yeah, though. Yeah. So I don't know what I would think now. Like, but I, I would be, I would definitely 
be willing to sit down and check it out again. Well, I always knew this to be a shelved movie because it was for <laughs> a few years. It took a few years to come out uh, on video, and uh, I just for some reason never came across it like on VHS. But I'm kind of glad that I got to see it on cable and HD because it actually is a very to me, to my eyes, for this type of movie, it seemed very expensive. Like there's like they constantly go to a lot of different locations in the desert, and my favorite is like um, for people who don't know, it's basically like Chad Lowe, which is Rob Lowe's younger brother, I think. Well, he is his brother, but I don't know who's older. Chadlow's probably younger, don't you think? I would have, I would assume so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's in it with uh, Christy Swanson, and like they're they're uh, he's like a shitty pizza delivery boy, and they're trying to drive to Las Vegas so they can elope, but they go onto the highway to hell, which is literally like if you drive past. Well, actually, it's not even if you drive if you stop in between this section between like I don't know exactly how many miles it is, but it's like you pass this one tree, but you can't stop until you pass the other Joshua tree. But if you do stop, the, the highway to hell will open up and the, the evil necromancer uh, satanic cop will come get you and kidnap your pretty woman, which is what happens here with Christy Swanson. And so Chad Lowe goes on like a weird odyssey throughout. It, it's literally hell, but it's almost like an alternate dimension. And there's like, it's kind of funny because there's all these like weird like businesses that he stops at and shit and like just these weird wacky characters that inhabit hell and my favorite trev was uh when they when he goes to the diner and uh it's like all the zombie cops are out there uh and uh one of the zombie cops is played by none other than jerry stiller and then you have his wife and mira playing the waitress and you get a very young very green ben stiller playing the short order cook who's like frying all these eggs and shit out on the sidewalk it's very bizarre <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh if you need a it, it keep it seems to like keep jumping from cable channel to cable channel so if anybody out there has cable or satellite and has any uh movie channels check it to see if it's playing highway to hell i would recommend it for a good laugh for sure i'm glad i finally got to see it yeah i remember there being like other like i know like gilbert godfrey was hitler yeah. in there and, yeah uh, yeah and uh and yeah i remember i know you're talking about i remember the time too when it was around like Fangoria was really pushing Hell Cop as like the new like horror icon, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and of course that did not go anywhere. But uh, but I'm looking at it now and I saw that I didn't even realize that Hell Cop is played by C.J. Graham, yep. who played Jason, Jason in my favorite Friday the Thirteenth movie, Part Six. Yep. Um, and interesting enough, Highway to Hell, written by Brian Helgeland. Yep. His early that. days. Yeah. And that, not, you know, uh, that's an obvious jump from that to L.A. Confidential and Mystic River, I suppose. <laughs> hey, I'll give him credit. He got he got real better real fast. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So we'll go ahead and roll into the feature presentation tonight. We thought it might be fun. We each picked five. Uh, forgot. We're focusing on the decade of the 80s, but we're like five forgotten films. These might have been films that you remember from Cable. Or your youth, but they just aren't movies that are really like talked about much nowadays. Wouldn't you say that's fair to say, Trev? Yeah, this is a topic I'm kind of fascinated by. So, like in in recent months in particular, like one of my favorite things to do is just choose like a really notable actor. You know, typically older actors, not not like someone who you know, not like a Chris Hemsworth or something, but someone like um, an Elliot Gould, for instance. We all know like the classic Elliot Gould films, but you kind of forget that that guy made a lot of movies, right? And you go into his IMDb and there's so many films you've never even heard of. And you really, and it, that to me is like so fascinating because obviously even today, a lot of movies get made that we never hear of, but those are usually like little small indie films. The ones that are just kind of made to just be dumped onto Walmart shelves for like a, a month, you know, and it's clearly like a little tax shelter thing for someone. I always find it fascinating that there's so many studio films where, you know, a lot of people poured a lot of work into this. It came out, obviously probably every newspaper in America wrote a review of it. 
it had its little moment and then it just kind of goes away. And like, so those movies are like kind of fascinating to me, these movies that just vanish from the ether. And, um, yeah, so you and I were talking and, you know, there's certainly, there's the kind of movies we would like to do full commentaries for. And these are the kind of movies that we don't know we'd ever sit down. Some of these are hard to see. That's kind of part of the reason I want to do this too, just to drink, draw back attention to them. But they're not, they're not necessarily the kind of films we want to spend 90 minutes talking about, but we just kind of want to remind people they exist and say, Hey, remember this? And, wouldn't it be cool to get a little bit more eyes back onto this one? Yeah, break out the member berries. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, did you want to go first, Trev? Um, yeah, I can start. I'll actually start with one that is probably going to be like a, a, a strange outlier in the rest of these. So, that's why I want to kind of get it out of the way. And it's one that is definitely not the kind of film I think you and I would ever do like a commentary for. Uh, and I'm sure it's out of all the ones I'm going to talk about, at least, I, don't, I'm, I think with yours, too the typical listener of the show might be like, why is Trevor talking about this? But just, but give it a chance. It's a movie called half moon street from 1986. Uh, God, are you familiar with this one? No, I haven't heard of it. Okay. So this is a, uh, it's a, as Wikipedia calls it a British American erotic thriller. Oh, wow. Um, but it's, it's uh, directed by Bob Swaim and it stars Sigourney Weaver and Michael Caine. And what this is, is um, it's based on a novel by Paul Thoreau, who's a pretty noted uh, novelist. The novel is actually, so I guess he wrote a book, called half moon street um but the thing is that was like two novellas and both novellas were about different characters who live on half moon street and this movie is actually only an adaptation of one of the novellas and that novella was called uh dr slaughter which is such a better title i wish they'd run with <laughs> yeah you think for um, business reasons it would have yeah. done better and it is and it's like a literal title because sigourney weaver plays a character named dr lauren slaughter so she's this american academic who's living in london now and she kind of works. She works for this think tank in London. She's an expert on China, so she kind of helps them discuss like Chinese affairs and things. But she's just really unhappy there. Um, you know, all the men take credit for everything she does. She's having a really hard time kind of going up the ranks. You know, so you know, sexism alive and well. And she ends up being somebody she knows ends up sending her a videotape of this news story on kind of like uh, on high end escorts. And she finds this like very intriguing, and she decides to look into it. And she ends up meeting the guy who runs this high-end escort service, and she talks to him, and she agrees to become an escort. And this is why I'm kind of highlighting this movie. So like the, the general plot of the movie is she becomes this escort, and she does it uh, with this kind of rule where she'll go on a dates with the men, and but she gets to decide if they have sex or not. Like, that's completely in her power. And sometimes she does, and sometimes she doesn't. It's you know, So it's a very, like, for 1986 in particular, it's a very, like, She's a very empowered character, and it's a very pro-sex worker movie at a time where you didn't see that very often. Yeah, I was, um, was going to say, it sounds like the, they would have had to file this uh, movie back in the day at the video store under science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's what's cool about it. It's, like, it's nice to see a movie back then, you know, that was like saying, like, yes, it, the women can do this, and it, they can be still be powerful and kind of be in charge of their sexuality. So one of her escorts ends up being Michael Caine, who kind of gives a fake name, but she inst- because she's already involved in, like, the political world, she instantly recognizes him as he's actually a House of Lords member. And she right away tells him she recognizes him, and they just end up getting to talking. And even though she's technically his client, they end up actually kind of falling for each other and start a real relationship. The only thing being because of because of how they've met and because of what she is, he can't tell anyone about her. So he has to keep it a secret. And then throughout the course of the film, it turns out that he's actually currently involved in these really delicate peace negotiations with the Middle East. He's trying to bring finally bring peace between um, Israel and Palestine. 
And obviously there are people who don't want that to happen. And in them trying to prevent it from happening, they kind of do some, you know, looking into him and discover that he might have this, you know, weak spot in this escort he's seeing. And so in the last like 15 minutes or so, it actually suddenly becomes kind of more of a thriller, even has some like action to it. That really is jarring when it happens. Yeah. And that's not even like why I'm recommending the movie, because really what ultimately sells this movie for me is I'm sure some people watch this and be like, I don't know, it's not it's just kind of slow relationship movie. But you I think you really like Sigourney Weaver and Michael Caine in this. Uh, She's really likable. Um, He's likable. Their chemistry is really strong. And even, I could have watched this movie even without like the the thriller aspect at the end. I just think watching their relationship develop, and like I said, just seeing like a, a movie with this this subject matter of this time. And I also say um, there is there's a lot of Sigourney Weaver nudity in this. Oh, and wow. <laughs> I know it's like um, I, not that I want to turn this into a show about discussing women uh, and their looks or anything, but I know like Sigourney Weaver is like one of those that it's, it's sometimes it's divisive on whether she's a, a like a you know a sexy woman or not. I. I myself always have thought she's very attractive and this movie like really seals the deal on that because it's not, I mean, not just for the nudity, but just for how in charge of her sexuality she is and just like the, the kind of power of the characters she's playing. Um, so I really like her character in this. And like I said, then she's called Dr. Slaughter, even though it's not, a, sounds like she should be a slasher or something, but the name is just so cool. And like what she's doing is, is like interesting. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a neat one to check out. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the type of characters she plays and how those characters are presented. But I think if you need to have any doubt about Sigourney Weaver's sex appeal, check out uh, the last 10 minutes of Alien where she gets into the uh, the, yep. the, the suit. Uh, check out Galaxy Quest and check yep. out that movie Heartbreakers with uh, Gene Hackman. Or the, last, like, or the last like you know 10 or 15 minutes of Ghostbusters as well. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, when, who was it? Zool takes over? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, that was like bam in your face right there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I believe. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was gonna say it's funny how you described it. How it kind of turns into like some little bit of uh, action at the end. Is I feel like that was a pure '80s move because I've had that happen to me with a lot of '80s movies where they they have to get some obligatory uh, tension and chasing and action going just to sell the trailer. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's funny too because if you even look at like some of the posters for it, it's, it really just looks like I, I bet most people walked into the theater just expecting it to be this kind of like relationship drama, and then the last ten minutes kind of suddenly bats you over the head with something else. But uh, but it all it, it works well enough. Yeah, I want to check it out because that's a that's a powerhouse duo of actors right there. Alrighty, for my number one pick, I feel like this was a movie that like really slid under the radar of the time that was released. Um, it probably got some play on cable. Um, the DVD came, even the Blu-ray came a couple years ago with very little fanfare. Like I never heard anybody talk about this movie, but I just remember it kind of very vaguely from like HBO, Showtime, whatever days back in the day. But uh, and this is a recent, uh, I think, the beginning of quarantine watches for me. But uh, I took another look at it and I rediscovered the movie Cherry Two Thousand. You ever mm-hmm. see this, Triv? Uh, a long, long time ago. It's funny because yeah. when you when you showed me that, that was one of the ones you're thinking about. I, I really want to go back and revisit it now. Yeah, I, I really think you should. Um, basically, for you know, people- it's interesting too. I just saw it's produced by Edward R. Pressman, who also yep. produced Half Moon Street. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Pressman's all over the eighties. But yeah. if I'm not mis misremembered, I think Pressman um, also did um, Christmas Evil. I think. <laughs> Probably. But but yeah, he he does some good uh, sleazy flicks back in the day. But this one, it, it's kind of weird because 
as 80s as this is and how it's almost like a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek almost like throwback to some 50s sci-fi too it's kind of in a weird way like more topical now than ever so you basically have um and i think is maybe this is one of those things too trev where like they like even to this day they never knew exactly how to sell this movie (laughs) Mm-hmm. But it's very weird and off-ball. So basically, you have this guy who they kind of set up. He, he, you know, he's an office worker guy, whatever, uh, doing doing fairly well for himself, I suppose. And uh, he kind of sets up in the beginning that uh, uh, dating and relationships between men and women. This takes place in like an undisclosed future. So it's it, you know the beginning, like when they show the city, it's clearly futuristic. Um, but uh, dating between men and women has become, like, very litigious, and it's a very hard process. Like, there's literally, like, contracts. Like, he goes with his friends to a singles bar, and, like, there's, like, literally lawyers and shit there drawing up contacts for men and women to go on a date and have sex. Like, it's very bizarre. So he doesn't want any part of that. So what he does is he has his own wife at home, um, his Cherry 2000, <laughs> who's actually a sex robot, Trev. <laughs> and uh, it seems very... Um, you know, very convincing, very lifelike. I mean, it's played by a real woman. It's not like a blow-up doll or anything that he's with. But, you know, she seems like she cooks dinner, she cleans the house, whatever, and then they have a very, uh, you know, deep, uh, romantic... Um, you know, it's almost like, in a way, that movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix. Like, he's legitimately a, hun- a thousand percent in love with this robot. So one night while they're having, like, a romantic tryst, um, the dishwasher overflows and they're and they're passionately you know getting ready to make love kissing whatever on the floor and the water comes out on the floor and unfortunately it shorts out his robot his cherry 2000 and uh you know he goes to the robot repair guy and unfortunately you can't get parts anymore so i mean he could get it and the guy's trying to sell him on a new sex robot but he don't he doesn't want it he this man is heart and soul in love with cherry 2000 so he hires a bounty hunter, played by the awesome Melanie Griffith, who, like, I think this is probably... I think Melanie Griffith in general is kind of underrated, but I think this is probably, like, one of her most underrated roles. She plays this cool bounty hunter. I think her name is Red, because she has red hair, and she has this cool uh, late 60s, early 70s uh, Mustang, I think it is. So she's going to be his guide and take him through the wasteland, because there's, like, this mythic place of... Um, that's been abandoned out in the middle of the desert of like a warehouse of robot parts and replacement robots and whatever. So he has like the brain of his robot, but he has to put it into a new robot's body, but he wants to find the exact same body that looks the same, everything. So like, you know, without giving too much away, it's just kind of this wacky, like it's, it has a very like wild West vibe to it too. Cause they go out in like the wasteland and there's a really cool action scene with, um, some some guys in a crane and they pick up the mustang and like they're hanging outside the mustang you know probably hanging out of this car 100 feet off the ground shooting uzis and stuff like and then finally they get dropped into like this reservoir like there's some really cool shit but there's some great like cameo stuff too like you have the good old cowboy ben johnson is like a guy that they meet who lives in like this little mine that's like stockpile of old toasters and tvs and shit uh our boy trev tim thomerson he leads this uh not exactly like a cult but it's like a, it's like a, a colony, I guess you could say, of, of this like, like it's almost like a big fancy hotel, but it's these little like individual huts and stuff, and like he's pretty much like laying down the law out in this wasteland and all this shit, and uh, the main character he has to kind of stay there and humor him because he gets separated from, um, from uh, Red, and like he he kind of like you know it's one of those journeys where like he meets this badass woman in order you know he's just dying whatever to get his sex robot back because he's, he's kind of a nerd so he kind of like being around this woman and the shit they get into he kind of becomes like 
a more ballsy hero in his own way. That's always fun to watch, and uh, it's just a great chase movie. And uh, you know, I won't I won't spoil it, but there's there's a really cool. Um, in sequence uh, when they finally get to the robot uh wasteland which is kind of like almost like a, i think it's like in a casino that's been like uh trev like like blown over with sand and stuff dude it looks exactly like you remember that one resident evil extinction movie where they went to las vegas and the casinos are all under sand and shit it looks exactly yeah. like that like i totally feel uh ws anderson uh stole that from cherry 2000 but yeah, man, like, you're going to love Melly Griffin, and, like, I mean, I don't think this is, like, a spoiler, but obviously there's romantic tension between the male lead and Melly Griffin. Right, well, that, it's funny, cause, like, what your memory does to you, right, because I said, I, so I was obviously very young when I saw this on cable, Yeah. and I, I don't I don't remember anything about it being about, like, a sex bot or anything. All <laughs> yeah. I remember is Melly Griffith. Like, yeah. I remember her being, like, because I think even when I was a kid, you know, and, like, you'd see, I would see this on the video shelf, I just always assumed, like, she was Cherry 2000, right? Because right, she's, right. like, obviously, like, on the poster and everything, and... And, but I remember, like, I have memories of watching just like those scenes in like the wasteland with her. And I think you and I have talked about it before, but I mean, there's, it doesn't get much hotter than like Melanie Griffith in the 80s. No, I mean, no, no. Yeah. So. Just, in this, this one, I mean, I really think like when you look at the way her hair is cut and the outfit she wears and stuff, like, I, I, I mean, I think this movie was more influential on like the directors that saw it as like probably, you know, kids or teens than probably just a general audience because like mm-hmm. there's so much to her visual look reminds me of Mila in um The Fifth Element. And yeah. then, then also too, it's like she kinda has like I don't know, it's like she kinda has like that badass thing that like Mila also did in the Resident Evil movies in just the wasteland setting and shit. I mean I don't know, it's just it's just a really good B movie that like you know, like it's just it's weird, and I'll be honest. I when I, I know I did see it, I always remembered it as a weird movie. Like I was not really into it because I didn't really like get as a kid. I didn't really get what it was about or like what was cool mm-hmm. about it. But like you know, being older and being a fan of like, I guess you can't really call it a post-apocalyptic movie, even though it really is. They spend like probably 80 percent of the movie in the wasteland but there is like a regular functioning society it's just that they're out in these deserts and shit you know like kind of the government or whoever has just let it go into shit and let it be lawless but uh just a lot of fun and like you're gonna fall in love for sure with uh melanie griffith here with like not only with like obviously how you know uh great she is uh you know as a leading lady but just also how cool she is you know like it's one of those few movies where it's like don't get me wrong, Trev. I'm all about the female heroes. I love the female heroes. I love yeah. hell. I'm I'm the guy who even has the Blu-ray of Ultraviolet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but sometimes it's a little forced. It's a little whatever. Mm-hmm. So that, like to me, like this, like Red from this movie, uh, Melanie Griffin, she belongs on the true, you know, the wall of the Hall of Fame of female mm-hmm. action heroes and stuff. You know, so I can't recommend this movie highly enough. I like I didn't, I need to track down the the blue of it before it goes out of print because it's definitely one I want to be able to watch. You know, over and over as the years go by. Yeah, I'm looking at like uh, so I guess I'm just trying to jog my memory again. It's um, not too much is coming back to me, but just looking at like screen grabs and just knowing now what you said what's about and then the Melanie Griffith character, I feel like it would be a good maybe a good double like a double bill with uh, Tank Girl. I feel like oh, it's kind of big... got like that sort of vibe to it. it. It's very much got that vibe to it. Like, like yeah. it, obviously, it doesn't have like all the weird like creatures and shit in it. Yeah. But the wacky group of people that they meet, you know, throughout going through the desert and shit. And then, like, there's a cool part where they're kind of like in you know, like a western town, like where he first meets her to hire. Her. I don't know. Like, I, I, I definitely think it's like, you know, like I said, I, I think it's a movie that's probably a lot better than people probably remember. But at the same time. 
more than anything, it probably is just, it's probably not the movie that people think it is because of the marketing was so, you know, like, how do you sell a movie like this? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, Cherry 2000, check it out, everybody. Cool. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just, I'll stay in that, uh, that post-apocalyptic weird sci-fi realm with my next one. And I'll, I'll go to a, a very recent discovery for me. So this is kind of, again, uh, sometimes I'll just kind of fall down strange rabbit holes online. And, you know, I don't even remember how I got to this poster, but I found a poster for a movie and I just saw that. And I was like, I have to see this movie. I'd never heard of it and uh, tracked it down. It's unfortunately, it's not a movie that has any current um, physical release, but, you know, um, you can find it online. <laughs> you can find your ways. If you want to check out the old <laughs> YouTubes, for instance. Um but this is a so we're gonna visit our old buddy Albert Pune. Oh yeah. Uh, so people, uh, you know, listeners of the show might be very familiar with Albert Pune, a very prolific B movie director. Um, directed films like you know like Alien from L.A. and the the '90s Captain America, uh, Doll Man, a bunch of like you know like the Nemesis movies, Mean Guns. Um, you know you know what you're getting into with an Albert Pune movie. This is pretty weird even for him. This is a movie called Radioactive Dreams from 1985. So you know this one, Goat? I've heard so much about it. I've never yeah. come across it on cable or videotape yeah. or nothing. No, so. it's... Uh, that's the thing is like i said i had to i had to find means to watch it now i think this this is definitely one of those films that i want to champion so hard i really want like a label like synapse or vinegar syndrome or uh severin to you know find their way to this um so what this is about is um it's post-apocalyptic sci-fi comedy it's about a nuclear war that breaks out in the in the, the mid 90s and these two uh, men played by uh, – well, one of them is George Kennedy and the other one is an actor whose name is going to totally escape me. But they, they basically see the nuclear war coming and they hole up in a bunker in a mountain with their two sons. So they each have a son and they the four of them go into this bunker. And these guys were clearly – you know you can get the sense that they never kind of uh, outgrew when they were used in the 50s. They're still really into – they use 50s slang. They bring uh, – <laughs> the, bunk, the bunker is filled with all their like old 50s detective novels. And they're very into like, you know, all that like uh, Raymond Chandler and Mickey Spillane kind of stuff. And eventually they set out the 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 dads set out on like a, a trek to go find who caused this nuclear war and why, leaving the two boys behind. So these two young boys are are left to raise themselves in this bunker. And you kind of get this time jump and now you catch up with the two boys grown up, but grown up only with they've raised themselves on all these 50s detective novels that they have so they talk like 50s noir characters and their names are philip chandler and marlo hammer and if you're into you know noir fiction you'll understand that all that their names in this are are you know tributes to philip marlo raymond chandler mike hammer either authors or characters from that world um so they're played by john stockwell who people will remember from christine and uh you know like uh what else? Uh, like um, oh, everything. Oh, my, sci- my science project. You know, city losing limits. it with Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, even in Top Gun, I believe. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he's one of them. And then the other one, interesting enough, and I already mentioned him earlier, is Mike Michael Dudikoff. Oh yeah. And what's really fun about this movie? I mean, I'll get. I'll talk a little bit more about what's happening in the plot. But for people who are very used to Michael Dudikoff, is just like the American Ninja guy, and you know that the string of kind of very just like you said, canon kind of action films he made. He is so goofy in this. Like, this is like the most comedic character he's ever played. Um, so John Stockwell is like the straight-laced one, and Michael Dudikoff is the very over-the-top goofy one. Like I said, they they eventually decide to, to go out, uh, leave the shelter. They've got this kind of like old, you know, classic car. 
they dress in the clothes they have are old 50s, uh, you know, suits. And they talk in the old 50s slang. They're very into swing music and everything. And they head out into the wasteland to see, like, what the world is like now. And it's then it becomes very Mad Max-ish. What they find is mutants, um, you know, roving gangs that look like that typical 80s post-apocalyptic punk gang kind of thing. And they end up getting involved in this kind of uh, hot potato game with uh, the keys to the last remaining nuclear bomb. So there's one more nuclear bomb that was never de- detonated. And they come across this woman who has the key to it, the key that can be can be used to set it off. And she's trying to uh, they don't know what she's trying to do with it, but they get involved with her. And that gets them involved in this whole thing with all these various parties who are trying to take that key. Uh, it's, there's not much more I have to say about it. If if there is like a downside to the movie, it's that at a certain point they end up in this kind of uh, what you know is like now a city. It's called Edge City, and it's like where all the gangs live, and it's kind of this like underground, uh, you know, city. There's some fairly interesting stuff in there. They go to this like post-apocalyptic dance club. There's gangs of cannibals in there that capture them, but the movie probably spends a little bit too much time there. It really kind of does the middle of the movie kind of like grinds to a, a halt a little bit. But then you get into some pretty cool stuff where you just find out there's actually like uh, these giant mutated. I don't even know if they're supposed to. Be, I don't. I could never figure out if it was supposed to be a dog or a rat, but it's just gigantic now, and it'll pop up from under the ground and eat people in this city. <laughs> and that's actually like a really cool like practical puppet. Um, there's these kind of two like mutated mutants who are like running one of the gangs and trying to get their hands on the key, and just yeah, it's just this. It, the concept of the movie is so weird and it's just like this this bizarre mix of like this you know the 50s based characters into this like post apocalyptic world that even when the movie can get a little slow or when some of the jokes don't land it's just one of those movies that's always like designed to be a cult hit right because it's just so bizarre they're kind of constantly entertained by it and kind of like wow i can't believe this movie exists so i know like in recent years it's definitely played like you know people have been tra- there's like prints of it traveling around and playing at different like kind of revival screenings but man, I would love to see a good physical release of this, just because it's it's just so strange and it deserves to be. It definitely deserves to have more of a following. For sure. I mean, it must just be one of those weird things where somebody financed it who normally wasn't in the movie business. So like, there's a lot of movies like that happen also with popcorn, where like these people finance movies and then they're not really in the business later on. So then that's why the rights are like because like, I mean, <clears throat> sometimes I. I you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt, like some of the box office stuff, like on Wikipedia. But it, like, this was a real movie. Like it said, the budget mm-hmm. was three million and it grossed seven million at the box office. Like usually, those yeah. type of movies are uh, get somewhat of a you know, especially yeah, thought, in this day and age. Blu-ray. I thought maybe it was like a music thing because you know there's a lot of music in the movie. But then when yeah. I was looking at the songs and stuff, it's not like any big artists, right, you know. Right. So it, you know, it can't be really that either. Yeah, but yeah, I know. And it's like a lot of the music is kind of like '80s new wave music. Um, so that's like an interesting contrast too with like their '50s based personality. So it's just a really bizarre hodgepodge of different genres, and and that's exactly what makes it interesting. I, I I'm sure you're with me in loving that kind of stuff, right? When someone just oh, takes. Yeah multiple genres and throws them in a blender and, and also to uh albert poon uh he's 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 a wacky guy and like unfortunately in some of his later movies you can see where his wackiness um kind of went overboard <laughs> and out of control mm-hmm. but it sounds like uh he was right really uh like you know in, like hitting in the zone with this one you know what i mean yeah so I know sure. the I know the VHS release was Vestron, so here's hoping that maybe like because I know like there's the Vestron Blue label yeah. now, so maybe, but who knows? Which yeah, tiny tidbit right here. Um, good news, people thought that label was dead, Trev, because they hadn't put anything yeah. out about a year, yeah. but they just announced two more titles, so right. hopefully you know. 
And not only that, but did you see they they like really drastically lowered their price point too? No, I didn't know that because uh, yeah. I, I was looking for Dagon recently, and uh, pretty much all their stuff is out of print. I don't think it's out of print, out of print. It's just mm-hmm. sold out, and because of the pandemic, a lot of people like there's there's basically a backlog. There's there's a lot of stuff that's getting rare right now that's not even officially out of print. It's just they can't get more copies in the pipeline. So. Uh, Hopefully, uh, when whatever demand, supply, whatever, like, I would love. I'm just curious, though, because, like, with those Vestron ones, you really need the slipcase. I'm not even a slipcase guy because 99% of the time the slipcase is the same as regular Clover. So, like, like mm-hmm. Screen Factory, I really don't even care if I get the slipcase, honestly. But with the Vestron ones, you really need it because it's literally the only thing that has, like, the silver and says Vestron on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I noticed uh, I, uh, that initial wave of Vestron releases, there was a lot of ones where I was like, well, I would maybe take a, like, a chance on that. Just like, you know, or like I'm not super into the movie or haven't seen it. But the price point always kind of scared me off because they were very pricey. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that the two new releases, which we should mention, are Little Monsters and, and Shivers. Um, yeah. They're both coming in with just a retail of $15. So yeah, wow. I guess they're really they're really trying to get more competitive. Recalibrate. Um, yeah, because yeah, cause I, I stayed away from some of them, too, and then, like, they got marked down later on. Because most of the ones that I got, I got picked up later down on markdowns. But um, oddly enough, because I'm, like, a super, like, whatever sleuth for low prices, Trev, oddly mm-hmm. enough, the two places where, even in their heyday when shit was expensive, the two places where I got mine, where I was able to actually get good deals, was actually, the number one place was Bull Moose. Which people, yeah. people don't know. Uh, I feel like it's becoming more popular, but it's. Um, I think they're from Maine. It's like an actual chain of physical stores, but obviously they sell online too. And uh, they're pretty. They usually have. It depends on what company's product you're looking at. Some stuff they're the same as everybody else. Some things are a little bit higher, but for a lot of stuff, especially a lot of the, the really super niche, like some of the boutique labels, you can find their stuff very competitive, and it's free shipping, uh, free. Um, it's free shipping if you order over thirty bucks, I think, and free. And it's there's no tax. It's like the only place I still buy from online where there's no tax. And oddly enough, I was able to pick up some Vestron shit on the cheap from Walmart.com, mm-hmm. which I'm not like a Walmart shopper in real life. But when it comes to movies, like literally the only thing I buy from them is movies. And uh, sometimes they have some weird low prices there. So yep. if you're ever desperate and you're priced out on a super, you know, expensive release, check out those two places. You you might get lucky. But yeah, I'm pumped for Vestron coming back. So I'm going to roll on with my number two uh, recommendation. And this is a movie that I was begged and begged to cover this for years. But as far as I knew, it didn't have a physical release. I could be wrong. I didn't have any way to rent it. So this is why we never covered it. But back on the early days of the movie Graveyard, my main man, Corey G, baby. He wanted me to watch Real Men really bad. And I just saw it literally recently. This was another pandemic watch, and uh, I saw it. Uh, it was on what was it on? It's still on Stars, I think. So I was like, mm-hmm. whatever, I'll watch this, man, and see what this is, because it stars um, uh, Jim Belushi and John Ritter. Love both those guys. Obviously, John Ritter no longer with it. I was like, I'll give this, a, you know, I'll give this a watch. See what all the Corey G hype was about. This is a this is a fun movie. This is a good movie, but I gotta admit, the thing that makes this movie stand out, Trev, is so bizarre. It's so goofy. It's so weird. I can't remember. Were you telling me about this too? Have you seen this? Uh, no, actually, I haven't seen Real Men. Yeah. So basically, this is just all it is. It's like 
The movie starts out, there's some, like, CAI dude who's, like, or maybe he's FBI, I'm not sure. He's going into the woods to make a deal with some aliens that are supposed to come. And, like, he's carrying literally a glass of water. You don't know why. You don't know what's going on. He gets shot. He gets killed. The aliens never come. Basically, we enter uh, uh, John Ritter. He's, he's like, a normal, everyday dork who, like, everybody walks all over him. Like, literally some bullies down the street steal his son's bike. (laughs) He tries to go get it back. These, like, these young toughs beat him up in his own neighborhood. And he kind of just makes up an excuse, like, oh, no, it wasn't really your bike that they had, whatever, you know. But it's, he's, like, that type of, like, adult nerd. Like, Trev, like, whether it be high school nerds, college nerds, or adult nerds, the nerd, like, the wimpy nerds were such a major character in 80s movies, weren't they? For sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nerds, nerds, and, are... nerds and punks. Yeah. The, yeah. So, anyway, he gets wrapped up in this cockamamie plot of these aliens coming. And then, like, the thing that I really love about this movie, Trev, is there's, like, a whole intro action scene where there's, like, everybody, all these secret agencies. It's basically like a secret agent movie is what it is. They're all after the deal to, you know, to the, I think it's like a map or something to get to where you need to meet the aliens. Because the aliens are going to give us, like, all this otherworldly technology and shit. And all they want is a glass of water, turns out. So Belushi has to kind of rope in to help him get this mission done, this nerd John Ritter. And it just, they go on this whole thing. And John Ritter tries to become a badass, but it's it's hilarious, middling results. But, I mean, there's just nonstop shootouts, car chases. There's literally a, I'm not shitting you, there's a clown fight where they, they have to fight a gang of clowns in an alleyway. Like, this movie isn't so good as much as it's so coked up like it's so coked up i can't believe this is a real movie that existed and was made and and starred two very recognizable people so just on the sure curiosity freak show aspect of it because it's it's kind of what you think it is the way i'm describing it. it it's it's not really a shit show but it's just the whole time you're like what 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 the hell's going on here so for just the bizarreness of it i would recommend real men yeah, that's another one that I was always like very aware of when it was out, um, and I'm sure I probably passed it on cable a lot, but just for whatever reason, maybe you know I'm I, I'm willing to bet I was probably like in that like I'm too cool for a Jim Belushi phase, you know, <laughs> right, around the time right. when it was out, you know, because it was always like the kind of like oh he's the lesser Belushi, you know, yeah, yeah. and there are still times when I feel like that, although like more recently in recent years he's become a more much more interesting actor and taking very interesting chances. Um, in fact, rolling into my next one, we keep getting like weird, like, so you did Cherry 2000, then I had a post-apocalyptic one and we keep having like these weird overruns because you just did one starring Jim Belushi. Well, he recently appeared in the revival of Twin Peaks as one half of the Mitchum brothers. And the next movie I'm going to do stars the other Mitchum brother, Robert Nepper. Uh, so it's, I'm here to talk about 1987's Wild Thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, before I go any further, yes, I know that in recent years we found out that Robert Nepper is not a good person in real life. <laughs> uh, I'm very aware. That's unfortunate. But, you know, art from the artist and all that. So uh, Wild Thing is uh, directed by Max Reed and written by uh, John Sayles, the great John Sayles, who sometimes um, I think there's like two kinds of John Sayles fans. right? There's the people who only know John Sayles for the very like, you know, the very legit kind of dramatic work he does. And then there's people like us who love him because he wrote Piranha and Alligator and The Howling. Right. Um, and that batshit insane unused Jurassic Park 4 script, uh, which you can still find online with the the, <laughs> the dinosaurs using machine guns. Right, right. Uh, yeah. 
So this is another one of this would be an, another in his, um, you know, strange genre fair. Uh, in fact, this movie uh, you've seen Wild Thing, right? Go a long time ago. Yeah. Like more than anything, Trev, it's that poster that's burned in my yeah. memory. You remember? It that? feels it, yeah, for sure. And then also, well, I so I rewatched it for this, and it it has a, such a Larry Cohen vibe to it. Um, it feels like it, it really much feels like kind of a, a, the kind of movie he would have made. Just um, so what it is is uh, this this young boy, um, this uh, who has these there's these two hippies that are traveling across the country. They're with their young child, and they pick up this hitchhiker. The hitchhiker asks them to like take him into the city, and it turns out he's involved with drug dealers in the city. And the drug dealers kind of hijack the van they're all in, and apparently you know something has gone wrong with this this drug deal he's been involved in. And they uh, end up murdering the the two parents, uh, the a crooked cop and the main drug dealer. And the young boy, he's hiding underneath the back seat of the van at the time, so they don't see him, and he manages to escape. And he runs off into the city. It's an unnamed city. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be New York, but it's it's never actually named. So it's you know any town USA. Um, but he ends up they, they could just give by calling it Edge City if they wanted to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But he ends up uh, getting taken in by this this bag lady, who uh, who teaches him. You know, she teaches him how to how to talk and how to live, and she basically tells him that he should always be aware. He should be wary of blue coats and white coats. So she's talking about cops and doctors. How they're they're both you know people you need to avoid. And you get then you go into this like cool montage where you see him growing up and kind of learning everything from you know from other. So he learns how to steal food, um, but then he also. There's like a karate school nearby where him and his bag leader are staying, and he'll go and actually watch the the guy do karate lessons. And just by watching him do it, he kind of learns karate. Uh, he'll watch TV on through people's windows or at the window of a TV store, and he sees uh you know uh, like characters on TV using a bow and arrow, and so he learns how to use a bow and arrow. And essentially, he then you do this another time jump, and now it's a, a very young Robert Nepper in one of his first films playing this this grown man now. A uh, young man who has basically become this urban legend in this t- in this city. You know, the, the bag lady that took care of him has passed away, and he's basically like this modern day Tarzan, an urban Tarzan who patrols like the the ghetto area of this town, and you know saves women who are being attacked. Um, you know, it's kind of like this figure that'll swoop in on a rope and save people, shoot his bow and arrow. And he's just like, it's kind of, it's Batman-esque, right? Where he's an urban legend and the people in the street will say like, no, you know about Wild Thing? And everyone's like, no, Wild Thing doesn't exist. And then Kathleen Quinlan shows up, young Kathleen Quinlan, uh, as a social worker who's been assigned to a local, like a, like, a, like a home there. And she ends up getting attacked by some thugs one night and Wild Thing saves her. And so then she's on this like kind of, you know, quest to discover who this man is and, you know, what's his story. And she's kind of, you know, it's a typical thing. She's kind of falling for him and they started this like bizarre relationship because he's very obviously socially backwards and talks in broken sentences. And then the, the more, the other backdrop to this is at the same time, you're, uh, the main villain is Robert Davi, the great Robert Davi. Oh yeah. It's this like crime Lord who controls everything there. And it turns out has had a hand in the murder of wild things, parents. And so wild thing is like discovering finally the people who, cause he remembers seeing them. So he remembers who kills parents and that becomes like kind of a, a revenge story. Um, very goofy film, but that's, what's great about it. You know, it's definitely the kind of movie that just kind of screams eighties. But it's also cool to see like, you know, a movie that was clearly trying to, to create this new hero. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this Max Reed ever directed anything else. I didn't really look into it, but, um, what's interesting is a lot of like the shots in this film. If, even if you just check out the trailer, you'll notice 
I kind of wonder if Alex Proyas had seen this because some of it looks like it might have inspired The Crow. There's just some like there's some cinematography things going on here that kind of gave me that vibe. But uh, but yeah, it's a fun like comic booky movie. Obviously, it's not a comic book character, but it feels like it would have been like a small like indie comic or something. You can almost sense that maybe they're trying to get a franchise going with this uh, and it obviously didn't take off. But I don't know. There's just something fun about the idea of like an urban Tarzan. Right. And it's like this. It's always fun. The, the idea of like these kind of urban heroes like like Dark Man and stuff like that that operate in the, the seedier areas of the city and are really trying to just protect the downtrodden. Um and yeah, it's Robert Nepper <laughs> again, whatever. But well, no, I gotta say though, Trev, you kind of blew my mind when you brought his name up because uh, I'm only aware of really of like maybe like uh, last 15 years of Robert Nepper. So like, mm-hmm. I know Robert Nepper is like obviously this older guy than he was in this movie, but I know him as like this kind of greasy, weaselish kind of B. He always plays the villain in the movies that I see him in, like almost like a slimy Lance Henriksen type, like almost how like Lance Henriksen is in Hard Target. So when you said he was in this, and I looked up the photos from the movie of him as Wild Thing, it kind of blew my mind seeing him in this mold. I'm like, I'm very no, and it, curious. It did to for see me this. too because in my head, like I felt like that I had never, I I felt like I discovered and didn't know who Robert Nepper was until Prison Break, right? Like right. when he was on that show. And it, it kind of blew my mind because this is a this is a movie I saw when I was a kid. And like to realize like, oh, I had seen that guy way before. Right. And yeah. I just didn't realize it. But because then, like you said, he does this where he's like the hero. And then he, and I don't really see anything else he does for a long time. And then you just go into this, this realm where like he only plays scumbags. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he really does have like, I mean, he kind of has a scumbag look, right? It's very, once, once, his modern day. Out, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I found out he was a real life scumbag, you're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you're you know? you're so, like, I could have called that. Yeah. Um, but no, this is, this is a fun movie. Like, you know, in that it's in that, that John sales genre vibe. Um, it's a, it's fairly thankless role for Kathleen Quinlan, but she's pretty good in it too. Another Kathleen Quinlan is another actress. I think people don't realize how, how often she actually works in like genre stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes people just think of her as being in stuff like Apollo 13. But if you look up her filmography, she's in a lot of like horror and sci-fi. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, this is a- I just did a podcast yesterday about the Twilight Zone movie, and she's in the yeah. Joe Dante segment. Yep. Yeah. She's awesome. She like mm-hmm. I, I kind of, like seeing her in that again kind of reminded me because for some reason in my mind, Kathleen Quinlan, I I usually go with the um, the Doors movie, which I love her in. But yeah, you're right about the whole genre thing. Yeah. But yeah, this is this is a fun one. There's a there is a, like Olive Films put out a DVD and blue of it that are maybe a little more expensive than they need to be but it, it's available yeah. there and uh you know it's it's a cool one to check out it's one that i think actually could be remade i think and maybe done like even a little bit better but uh it's just strange enough to be worth a look probably more of an audience strangely enough for this movie now than uh you know at the time that it came out mm-hmm. i mean because exactly the way you're describing it, it totally sounds like a um you know an origin story literally yeah for sure, or it's I, it almost feels to, to like or like a pilot, right? Like this could definitely be like a TV show, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I'm I'm gonna be hot on that. And like the two companies, because everybody you know is head over heels with some of these boutique levels, Trev. But the two companies that for me have been lifesavers in terms of putting out stuff I really wanted have been Kino Lorber and Olive, and Olive is like yeah. even way smaller than Kino Lorber. And uh, yeah, I know what you mean about the the Blu-rays being pricey. Uh, fortunately, mm-hmm. that's kind of par for the course with these smaller companies. It's really hard for them to stay afloat. They have to charge more. 
But uh, and thankfully, Kino, you can usually get sales, but I hardly ever see any huge sales on Olive. But yeah, Olive has a bunch of shit I need to get. So yeah, I'm gonna be looking forward to this movie. See if I can get it on cable somewhere first. If not, I'll track down a disc because it sounds awesome and uh, my curiosity is beyond peaked. And talk about a forgotten movie, Trev. Like when I I look, I glance at the poster. I'm like, oh my god, this thing was around forever and ever. Um, video stores and whatnot i always saw this cover and like i never mm-hmm. like i don't think i've ever seen it um all the way through um another movie that was kind of ubiquitous around that time that not that it's a similar movie at all but it kind of reminds me of that is like uh, remember brother from another planet <laughs> i do yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it was like that type of oddball uh thing but yeah, rolling along, number three. Uh, I won't go too much in depth. I just wanted to talk about the premise of this movie. So this was another, uh, you know, whatever recent lockdown watch. Um, and it really, I was like, oh, this movie has some cool people in it, you know. Like, I'll give it, I'll give it a watch. And it really blew me away with, like, kind of how interesting, how good the acting was and how heartfelt it is. It's a 1986 uh, little drama called Just Between Friends. With uh, Mary Tyler Moore, Christine Lottie, and Ted Danson. Were you familiar with this movie at all, Trev? No, I wasn't until you, you put it in the list you sent me, and then I kind of looked at, looked at it a little bit, but not one I've seen. Yeah, so it's really unusual in that basically the story is, is uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Ted Danson are married or married couple. Um, I believe she's an author and kind of like in her spare time, she does a lot of aerobic stuff, so so, and she's like really good at it. Like Mary Tyler Moore is like so buff in this movie, Trev. It's crazy. Like she's in skimpy little guitars, everything, and like this woman, besides being very lean, you're like she had some uh, uh, muscles popping out all over. I don't think that's a sentence I ever thought I would hear. Mary Tyler Moore is so buff. <laughs> she's so dude. She's so buff. I wouldn't have fucked with her when she was uh, in this type of shape. But anyway, like, yeah, so she kind of, uh, and then there's kind of like, at the beginning of the movie, you kind of don't know where it's going because it's following Christine Lottie, who uh, works for a television station for a news department. And uh, she's a reporter who's trying to get a, you know, a more prestigious, like, desk anchor job. So you're kind of like, oh, how does this all, like, whatever. But then you realize kind of what ties this movie together is um, uh, Ted Danson is having an affair with Christine Lottie. Uh, and then through a really, like, it's kind of one of those movies where what I like about it, Trev, is as a viewer, we're two steps ahead of the characters, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we kind of watch this whole kind of crazy thing uh, unfold where basically Mary Tyler Moore and Christine Lottie become friends. She invites her over for dinner. And, like, like even though Christine Lottie knew she was dating a married man, she had no idea who the wife was. So there's, like, there's this great scene of this, like, dinner party where it's just like, you want to talk about awkward tension, where Christine Lottie realizes what's going on, and also Ted Danson walks in, and his mistress is like in the middle of his house. It's really crazy, and uh, without going too much into it, basically, you know, like like she's trying to, like they're trying to keep this, this secret, uh, you know, whatever, and Christine Lottie feels so bad, because she actually was friends with, you know, the wife of the guy she was cheating with, all this shit. And, like, basically, you just get thrown a curveball about halfway through this movie where Ted Danson, uh, he's on assignment somewhere for his job. He's, like, a scientist. And uh, I can't remember if it was a car crash or a plane crash, but anyway, he dies suddenly. So you're like, oh, shit. So then there's, like, this thing of, like, you know, the two women remain friends, and obviously some shit happens. Uh, We're going through some of Ted Danson's things. Mary Tyler Moore finds out, and then the rest of the movie plays out kind of, like, 
these two women, like, they have this connection. Are they going to remain friends? Are they going to whatever? And it's also, there's there, this is a great performance by Mary Tyler Moore because there's so much depth to her character. Uh, realizing like what her marriage really was and how much she didn't know about her husband or whatever. I mean, I just can't recommend it enough. Like it, it sounds like kind of a stodgy movie, but it's really not. There's a lot of humor in it and like a lot of the rebound part of the movie where they're both recovering from the death and the things are coming through. Like there are some lighthearted moments, so it's not like drudgery and sad. It's not like a tearjerker by any means. I mean, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's not a tearjerker. It's just more fascinating, the drama and stuff. So I would definitely recommend this movie for anybody who, uh, you know, just really likes to see a movie where it's like, you know, in this day and age where everything's a sequel, a prequel, a remake, and you know everything going in, I think this is just a great piece to discover some completely unknown original characters and, like, how good they pull off the drama in it. So I definitely give a strong thumbs up to uh, Just Between Friends if you see it on your local cable or streaming or wherever. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, looking at it now, it definitely has a, a strong pedigree, too, right? Because I saw yeah. that the guy who wrote and directed it is the guy who created the Mary Tyler Moore show and the Munsters. Yeah. And then, and then just hearing you say that it's, like, such a strong performance from her, I mean, obviously, like anyone, like, around our age, I'm, I'm familiar with Mary Tyler Moore, but definitely has more of a TV personality. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, like, I certainly have seen Ordinary People, but I feel like beyond that, you know, like, well, Flirting with Disaster, I haven't really seen her in a lot of, in a lot of movies. So it's cool to think that, you know, I can check this one out and see more of her... Uh, little dramatic heft you know yeah i'm glad you brought that up because it because for me it was really actually flirting with disaster that like you know and i saw that as whatever an older teenager i think around the time it came out and it was really that movie i i i love that type of uh quirky independent movie and the character she played in that really opened my eyes up to be like hmm maybe mary tyler moore is um you know something a, a different kind of person and talent than you know what i mean than i than i thought she was you know right yeah but not yet. to say like yeah, not to say that she didn't have chops on like her show and stuff. But yeah. just you know, you you think that, that that's like all she does, you know. So right. And and again for this movie coming out in 1986, there's there's like really nothing about it that like dates it dates it at all. Aside from uh, there's like the one character who um is always recording his daughter's uh like whatever baseball games with a VHS camera. But I mean, other than that, there's like. It's so weird that you can see a movie that's, like, whatever, 30-something years old that's so timeless. Just everything. Like, this story could happen today. It would be the same emotions, the same characters. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a good watch. Cool. Cool. Well, unfortunately, I don't have any uh, natural connection from that one to my next one. So, the streak is uh, broken. Uh, but uh, but I know that you're excited about this next one. So, that'll, that'll have to do. Um, so, my next one is one that I think both you and I really desperately want a new release of. And that is um, 1986's Out of Bounds. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, like this cool like little crime action thriller uh, starring Anthony Michael Hall. I love and him. I remember, uh, well, I don't, I can't say I remember because I would have only been like five or six when this came out. But I have vague memories of like the awareness of this film, even when I was, when I was that young, being that this was like, what is Anthony Michael Hall doing in this? Right. Like, the, yeah. so this, and then looking into it now, it definitely was like, this was his, like he was, this was his effort to break away from yeah. the John Hughes Rat Pack comedy, uh, where he was just kind of always getting stuck as like the, the nerd. Right. And this, this is a film where he plays this like Iowa farm boy who, um, decides to, to move to LA, uh, with his brother 
And when he gets to L.A. at the airport, his bag gets switched with another one. And it turns out that the bag he has now, this is a pretty cliche. You know, you've seen this happen a million times. But the bag he has now is just full of heroin, right. uh, which belongs to this, this drug kingpin. And the drug ping, kingpin wants it back. And to uh, I'm not spoiling. This is going to sound like a spoiler, but this is like very early in the movie. The, the drug kingpin kills his brother who lives in L.A., who he was right. coming to live with. And is now coming after him. And so it kind of becomes this cat and mouse game with the two of them. And the other kind of main character worth noting is um, so there he met this girl on the plane, introduced herself and kind of told him where she works. And since she's literally the only person that he now knows in L.A., he goes and tracks her down and they become kind of the duo to this film. And that's the, the great Jenny Wright, who uh, yeah. I just had this huge crush on from Near Dark. Um and you know she's also in like the chocolate war and things like that talk but, about uh, talk about an unsung talent man yeah for sure so um, good. even have you ever seen i madman the horror film she made yeah dude I, I i i was one of those people by the way everybody who's out there enjoying your i madman blu-ray i was the one that made that happen because i bought you, you know what happened trev i bought that dvd a month later the blue was announced and let me tell you i was more than happy to buy that blu-ray again Oh, well, and I'm one of the fools who did not buy the Blu-ray and I was like, yeah, I'll get around to it. And now it's gone out of print and it's like super expensive. Oh, that um, sucks. And I'm kicking myself for it. So I'll probably just end up having to get that cheap DVD that you got. But um, full but, frame. Yeah. Enjoy. It. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is a really fun one. So, I mean, I, I, we've I've, I've talked about this before. Um, I love so like one of my favorite things are just any movies set in like New York in like the 70s or 80s. And that's that's also true of L.A., um, particularly like L.A. and the 80s films. Um, there's just something really cool about it, especially like when there are certain directors really can capture like the seediness and the nightlife of L.A. very well. Yeah, it's just like really cool. There's like, uh, oh, Susie and the Banshees are actually in this film. There's like a club scene where you get to see them perform at kind of like, you know, they're at their height. Uh, and just, yeah, like I. I, it's been a while since I watched it, so I can't remember how convincing I find Anthony Michael Hall in this role. Um but I think like the from what I can see looking back at old reviews, kind of the, the thing of the time was people were kind of like laughing at him for trying to right. break out of that mold. And what's interesting is that now we know he he really accomplished that uh, right. to the point where now I think he's more thought of as kind of like a tough guy a little bit. Uh, he can definitely pull it off more. And it's just neat to see that he uh, early on he was young and even though when he was that young, he knew that he had that in him and was trying to get away from it. But this is definitely just one of those fun, you know, um, simplistic but entertaining little crime thrillers with you know somebody being somebody out of their element fish out of water small town boy in a big city having to suddenly deal with like the horrible crime of la and then you got jenny wright as this cool punk girl who would have been exactly the kind of character i would have been obsessed with and in love with when i was younger so yeah uh definitely one i I would like to see a blue of at some point yeah definitely my little bit of two cents on this film uh i love this movie and i honestly just love it because i'm an anthony michael hall fan like this like you said this definitely was the movie Uh, like it totally would have fit in the trailer if they would have been like and anthony michael hall as you never seen him before yeah Yeah. but to be (laughs) fair like how you said like people kind of ragged on a little bit I think people like saw like the the preview for the movie and had it in their idea what it was supposed to be like, what his, his character was supposed to be like. He's actually supposed to be a aw shucks naive farm boy <laughs> thrown into the deep end. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I mean, yeah, like I can't criticize his role too much. I mean, either way, he went on to be a fine actor. And like you said, if you know him in real life, uh, I knew somebody who who met him a handful of times and said like like you can't really 
throw a sideways joke around Anthony Michael Hall, he'll take offense. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's it's kind of ironic. But yeah, I I, lo- I love the guy. I had this poster hanging up on my wall um, for many years, um, probably like a good five or six years, pretty much the whole time I lived in LA. And uh, one day, one of my most surreal uh, celebrity spiding, uh, sightings was um, uh, seeing the guy who played the drug lord. Was, was it Jeff Cober? Yeah. This isn't, yeah, seeing him at the post office, and he looked very much like he did in this movie in terms of dress and his whole hair. I mean, he was obviously older because it was like 20 years later, but I was like kind of walking in. He was kind of walking out. He kind of looked at me for a second. Like, I think for, for like a split second, he thought I was somebody he knew or whatever, or maybe because I was just looking at him. But yeah, like, yeah, like, I love that guy. And I know he was in like uh, Sons of Anarchy and shit later, but like, I, I would I would love to see that guy play more scumbags. He's He's freaking mm-hmm. awesome. But yeah, I need something. I would even take a... I hate to say this to lower myself to the standard, Trev, but I would take a standard definition DVD at least of this movie. Something. Give us something. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, you can you can rent it on you know streaming yeah. services, but yeah, but... Uh, yeah. And you should if you haven't seen it, but yeah, I, I, I would I agree. Like even if something like that came out, I'd probably I'd probably snatch it up because it, it's definitely one I have fond memories of. And I always I always do like that moment where like those actors try to like break out. Sometimes it's successful. Like this to me is like the, the successful version of, and then the like non-successful version is, do you remember when Patrick Dempsey did run? Oh, I love run dude. I have, I have a laser. (laughs) I have a laser disc of it, but it's my damn laser disc player broke. Yeah. I need run. I'm not a big fan of run. I just, I just remember like that to me was like, what are you doing? Patrick Dempsey? Cause he to me was still like, (laughs) it was the lover boy and can't buy me love guy. Right. And I didn't think he like was, I didn't think that movie worked as well as this one does, but well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I remember seeing Run at a matinee with my mom, and uh, I don't know what it is, Trev, because you watch that movie, and it's just like any other fast-paced movie. Some about mm-hmm. that movie, Trev, I think that was the most I was... I don't know why. Maybe because I was young or whatever, but the, but I was on the edge of my seat that whole movie, and I was somebody who not normally wouldn't get carried away with the motion too much watching a movie, but some about the frenetic pace of that movie, especially the shopping mall scene, uh, yeah, the, like I love that movie. And, and and as far as your Patrick Dempsey uh, criticism, um, I'm more into the other star of that movie, and I think you know who I'm talking about, Trev. Of Run? Yeah. Kelly Preston? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, She's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, by the way, one last tiny tidbit on Out of Bounds. Uh, I still have the one sheet somewhere. I hope I can get a house where I can get all my posters up. That is one of the coolest posters from a graphic oh, that, design. That, that painted one? Oh, yeah. Like yeah, the silver really cool. and the background, the background, of the painting of the cornfield and shit. It is awesome. Uh, I don't, like, I bought mine uh, around 04, and I picked it up for probably $20 or less on eBay. I know posters don't go for that cheap on eBay anymore, but if you guys, you know, have kind of like a retro thing, or you guys are, I, know, I see a lot of people on uh facebook trev that are kind of movie poster collectors and they snap them in and out once a month or whatever if you're one of those type of people uh that uh is is a good poster to pick up um another one that really pops looks good on the wall and is almost in a weird way like you said like with the la nightlife and shit is the no man's land with the charlie sheen that's a great graphic design Mm -hmm. poster too that's what you're going to get now is they're going to announce an out-of-bounds Blu-ray, but the cover is not going to be that poster. It's going to be some stupid Photoshop job of, like, you know, the, one of the scenes in the movie or something. They'll, they'll fuck up, and they'll do, like, the background head, floating heads of Jeff Cobra and Jenny Wright. <laughs> and then they'll, like, really screw up and take, like, a picture of him from, like, Weird Science. And put it on. <laughs> maybe, maybe if they get lucky, we'll get the cover where he has the bra on his head. 
my favorite thing i'm sure you'll know is to like when when dvds first came right and like oh, yeah. there's just like millions of dvds right and stores were just like every like so many small companies put on dvds and there was always that move to like companies could suddenly buy the rights to like the early films of all these stars and so you'd have like someone like George Clooney, right? And someone would put out like a new DVD of like Return of the Killer Tomatoes, but they'd put a picture of like ER era George Clooney on yeah. the cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like, like he's so mature. He's he's the movie star you know and love. And then you watch the movie, and he's like some like long haired gangly yeah. fuck with like no screen presence yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I I know the tricks for sure. All right, I almost feel like that was one of my picks, Trev. Just because I love the movie so much, but yeah, mm-hmm. I I have another pick uh, pick coming up. So this one, um, like uh, you even mentioned this guy earlier, and and the you know us uh, caretakers here at the movie graveyard, we love our boy uh, Larry Cohen, don't we? For sure. And this is a this is like almost like a more even though it did recently get a Blu-ray release, uh, I don't hear anybody talk about it even still. But this is a more obscure Larry Cohen joint. This one was called Special Effects from the mid-80s. I can't remember if this was 84, 85, somewhere around there. Um, this is a pretty cool movie for anybody who kind of likes, you know, like little trippy inside baseball type movies on movie making. But uh, basically he's uh, teaming up here with uh, Eric Bogosian, who's like, I, I don't know. Are, 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 are you a fan at all of Eric Bogosian, Trev? Uh, yeah, I like Eric Bogosian. I think he's, um, I mean, you know, it's not like you don't ever go see anything because Eric Bogosian's in it, <laughs> but he always, like, he always brings it to his yeah, roles, you know, yeah. even as recently as, uh, Uncut Gems, you know? Shit, I still gotta watch that, man. I have that on my, uh, digital account, but I need to watch it. But yeah, I, I, I got into him when I was more in college and I had to find, like, uh, uh, what do you call it, like monologues to do in acting classes. Mm-hmm. And i seen some of his like one-man show shit on, uh, I want to say IFC or maybe Sundance. So I really got in. And then like the movie Suburbia came out. Not the Penelope yeah. Spears one, but there is an Eric Bogosian uh, directed by, uh, based on Eric Bogosian's play, Direct the movie is directed by Richard Linklater. Um, mm-hmm. that, that finally, that was like one of my like long-lost gems, Trev, is uh, Linklater Suburbia finally, uh, like a couple months ago, got one of those, like little goofy mod dvd type deals from warner yeah and i finally picked that up yeah but, that's a good movie but yeah but I, as far as like his outside stuff obviously um where bogosian is just acting i think obviously his real tour de force is um is uh, talk, talk radio, radio yeah, yeah directed by oliver stone but as outside of that um this is probably his best movie so special effects eric bogosian plays a kind of gritty you know, very much a cinema verite, masturbator type of film uh, director. And uh, he has a, a film production that gets shut down, some funding, some some shit goes wrong. So he's like very edgy. He's very whatever. He kind of has like this cool New York apartment where it's like really almost like a lair and shit. And basically he has like a hidden camera. Like I th- if I remember right, it's like hidden behind like a plate of glass that looks like a mirror or some shit like that. So he always records, um, you know, like, like when he... Uh, bangs girls or whatever he's like that type of sleazy guy and he gets a hold of this girl who's like a uh like like they kind of set up that that uh she left her husband she's like like one of those ones that like leaves like the whatever cornfield town trip to come to new york to be a big star you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and like he's kind of like boning her whatever and like you know his dark side is whatever his he like he's just he's just a creepy guy whatever he ends up killing her on camera 
And he's like, oh, shit, whatever. And then he kind of gets fascinated that he kind of inadvertently made this snuff film. And then he's like, ooh, I have this footage of, um, you know, this snuff film that I accidentally made. You know, he he, he gets rid of the body. He does all that kind of shit. And he's like, oh, what should I do with it? So he actually goes out and finds finds another girl that miraculously is like the twin of the girl that he killed. But meanwhile, while that's going on, the the ex-husband of the first girl comes and is like, you know, figuring out, like, where was Mary Lou or whatever her name is, you know, where's Bobby Sue, whatever, like, looking around, doing the detective work, you know, we got a little boy at home, she needs to come be a, a mother of, and so, so there's some good Larry Cohen sleazy tragedy in here, but meanwhile, basically, the plan that Bogosian concocts when he finds that he can find, he find a second actress that looks just like this girl, is he's basically going to create this horror movie involving this actress and whatever, and he's going to create a fictional story of it, but his whole master, his evil master plan is the death scene of this actress in this movie will be the real snuff footage. So, he, you know, he she already looks like the girl, but he gets the hair exactly like he gets the matching angles and shit. So all the footage will cut together. And then obviously, you know, in great Larry Cohen fashion, there's always like some, you know, some fisticuffs to end it up and everything. Trev. So this movie blew me away. And also like the girl that plays like the double roles is uh if i remember her name right i think it's zoe lund it's, it's the girl that like um always yeah, collaborated yeah yeah abel yeah. Farrar. yeah yeah uh so like yeah so it, it's it's got that great sleazy you know i want to say this is like 84 85 but it feels even earlier like maybe late 70s early 80s is even feels either earlier and sleazier than it is but yeah i definitely recommend this movie it's a lot of fun it's 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 twisted got that great you know old school larry cohen feel going for it so yeah check out special effects yeah it's funny because i remember at the time like that always always getting this movie confused with fx yeah yeah um which obviously not the same thing but this is one special effects has been popping up on hbo uh, or one of like the hbo's recently so yeah and um, i think i think it was with that new well to to throw like another like even like let's go down the rabbit hole of getting shit confused even more trev is mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about FX with Brian Brown, right? Right, yeah. So there's FX with Brian Brown, then there's special effects, and then there's literally effects starring Joe Pilato, which is also Oh, like, yeah, that's the Savini one, right? Yeah, the Savini where it's yeah. like, oh, let, let, let's get some murderous shit on uh, camera. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. So, yeah. So, like, around that time, like, there's, there's, uh, there's definitely a whole. A rabbit hole of these weird movies that like all those movies are based around the title at least obviously fx with brian brown's completely different but in a way it's not because he is a special effects man but uh yeah there was a real um surge for that type of creativity at this time point mm-hmm. cool yeah uh i i don't i actually don't think i've seen that uh except for bits and pieces so that's another one i'll, I'll definitely have to check out i'm still i'm trying to fill in my entire like larry cohen uh filmography i saw just recently have you seen um perfect stranger the larry cohen film <sighs> no 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 okay i haven't either but i noticed that that's some one of the labels just announced that they're about to release that too so yeah we're we're starting to fill in his whole filmography on blue at least um, we, we kind of need it too because I, I i feel like on high def because i actually still just have the regular dvd of special effects which mm-hmm. I just like blind bought out of a big lots a few years ago for three bucks, and it actually looks very good. But I, I want to get the blue. Like, I kind of love like with like Q the Wing Serpent and shit. Like, 
But there's some like and we've talked about it before. You even referenced it as like that Larry Cohen look, especially in high def, man. That that gritty, cheap, independent, like almost cinema verite, grainy look. Like it's just it's beautiful, man. Like that's how I love movies to look like. And uh, Larry yeah. Cohen, even his shitty Salem's Lot, I've watched in quarantine twelve, and that movie was awful. But mm-hmm. it, it's it's beautifully shot. It looks great. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, so my next one, my final one, is going back to I know uh, someone you and I are both a fan of because we did a whole episode about him. Um, so we're going to go back. We're going to revisit our pal Dennis Hopper. Oh, yeah. And I'm going all the way back to 1980. So just making the cut here. But um, uh, and unfortunately, mostly forgotten. But a, but I actually believe about to be rediscovered uh, directorial effort from him called Out of the Blue. Um, so are you familiar with this one, Goat? No, I don't think so. All right, so I believe this is his third directorial effort, and the story on this one was that he was hired to simply be an actor in it, but about halfway through the filming, or maybe they had, I think they had started filming, I'm not sure how far along they were, but he was asked to actually step in and replace the director. I I don't know what the actual specifics on that were, but uh, he hadn't directed since 71 with the last movie, Um, and this was definitely the point in his career where people were very aware of his issues, and he was kind of... Um, definitely being overtaken by them very often. And you can find some stories about how people who worked in this film talk about how he could be very difficult, but he was still Dennis Hopper, and they trusted him enough to say, hey, do you want to take over the directing? He said yes, but only if I can also rewrite the script to kind of fit like my vision a little bit more, and they agreed. And he crafted this this film called Out of the Blue. So what this is, this stars um, Linda Manns, who... Um, had this really like it was so I'll get into like her a little bit more in a moment, but and why she's kind of a big part of why we're about to rediscover this film. But uh, people might recognize her from she has a small role in like uh, the Wanderers and she was the lead in Days of Heaven. And at this time, like people really thought she was going to be the next big kind of like young female actress uh, icon. Uh, she's getting a lot of acclaim for all these films, and then she just kind of uh, left the business she came back with a part in gummo so i'm sure you would recognize her from that but really she's pretty much just stayed away um but this was a film that brought her a lot of acclaim so out of the blue she's she plays the main character she's a character named cindy barnes everyone calls her cb and her dad is don barnes played by dennis hopper who is just a kind of an unrepentant alcoholic and one day they're out driving and he's driving drunk and just slams the tr- his truck into a school bus full of children, kills all of them. Damn. And he ends up getting sent to prison because of that, obviously. And she's then left, you know, at home with her um, mom, who also has some issues. Uh, they both remain very loyal to Dennis Hopper. Uh, they're very excited about when he's coming back. And that's where the film picks up, where we're just days away from he's going to be released from prison and kind of they can pick up their life again. And the whole thing is she's um, obsessed with Elvis Presley, or uh, he got her into Elvis Presley, and that's kind of her her icon. And, of course, this is at the point where Elvis Presley has just recently died. So she is kind of really bummed out about that. She talks about how Elvis Presley, like, betrayed her and has left her. And she often talks about committing suicide to go join him. She has now gotten heavily into punk rock. So this is, like, a kind of an interesting, um, you know, sign of the times look at the punk rock scene. Uh, as seen through her eyes. 
She talks about Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious. In fact, if you look at the poster of this, it says the po- the tagline of the poster is she's 15. The only adult she admires is Johnny Rotten, <laughs> which I think is a funny tagline because it's very much like, oh, what a what Ooh. a delinquent. Right. John, uh, not even John Lydon and Johnny Rotten. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's really just this like kind of it's a slow paced film in that kind of Dennis Hopper way. It's very leisurely. I've seen interviews with him where he actually called this kind of a spiritual sequel to Easy Rider. Um, cause it really is just kind of following her as she goes through everyday life, like waiting for her dad to get back. And then he, then we follow when he does come back into town. What's interesting is this is definitely one of those films where kind of no one is likable, but that's the point, right? Is he's just showing us this very realistic slice of life of this really fucked up family in a small town. Because once Dennis Hopper's back, he just instantly starts drinking again, slips right back into his same problems, the mom is like so forgiving of him when she shouldn't be. Um, and we're just seeing the toll. This is really taking on the Linda Mann's character on CB. And then as the film goes along, you kind of learn more and more about the, the past relationships of this family and, and how much more dark and twisted it might be than we realize. Uh, Raymond Burr has a couple scenes as the, uh, like the, the psychologist that is assigned to kind of oversee this young girl and kind of try to figure out like what's wrong with her. Apparently he had more scenes, but Dennis Hopper ended up just like cutting most of them. And I guess they did not get along during filming. So it's got a very interesting backstory, but the reason I said that, so out of all the films I talk about, this is the one I legit think is like the best movie. I think some people, some modern, some younger listeners, if we have, a lot of those might watch this and be put off by the pacing of it because it's definitely it doesn't definitely feel modern. But if you're into that kind of like character piece kind of stuff that Dennis Hopper is doing at this time, you'll love it. But um, just recently, Chloe Sevigny and Natasha Lyonne, the, the actresses, they've been spearheading this attempt to get this movie kind of back out in the ether. Because what happened is this movie pl- was shown at the Cannes Film Festival in 1980 and was and went over big time. And it was a huge hit in in Europe. Like everybody in Europe loved this film. And for whatever reason, this, you know, we've seen stories like this a lot. The American distributor like totally dropped the ball on this, and it basically like got a really crappy release in in both Canada and America. And so like on this side of the pond, right, it just was like never really not much attention was paid to it. But Chloe Sevigny has said that Linda Manns, even though she only did a few movies, is like her acting hero. And so she's been like spearheading this attempt to get this movie back. And they actually um, kickstarted and crowdsourced a full HD remaster that was actually supposed to debut this year at the South by Southwest. Unfortunately, we know that was canceled because of COVID, but I, but that means the remaster is done. Um, I'm, I'm imagining we'll, we'll get a blue of it very soon. Um, so I'm excited for that because it's definitely, it's just this cool like peek back at, um, you know, a, a little forgotten Dennis Hopper directorial effort a cool look at like the, like the punk attitude of that time and just like a really strong, yeah. Central performance from this, this young actress who you will, you will watch this and go, man, I really wish she hadn't left the business so quickly. I wish she'd stuck around cause she's pretty powerful here. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I was familiar with the title of this movie, but honestly I didn't know anything about it. And, um, yeah, yeah I'm looking at the Kickstarter now, like they raised 62,000. I'm hoping that, you know, hoping it doesn't say out of whatever, it just says that they raised 62,000. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. that's like was enough that they got to, uh, you know, do all their stuff that they're going to need and everything. Yeah, well, well like I mean, it's, I mean, it was a, it was officially on the slate for South by Southwest. So, I mean, it, it at least got to the point where they have a, they have a print ready to go. Now, whether they raised enough to get it distributed and everything beyond right. that, that's what I don't know. But here's hoping, you know. Yeah, because it looks awesome. Because I mean, this is like the type of movie that like 
you know, I would probably buy on Blu-ray, like, sight unseen, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sharon yeah, Farrell's yeah. in it. I like her, too. But, yeah, Linda Manns is weird because it's, like, uh, I know what you mean. I've read, like, you know, uh, especially around the time because I was a big fan of Gummo. When it came out and reading all the articles I could about it and the, the kind of, like, excitement about her coming back and all that, even mm-hmm. though she did have, like, a small role in it and stuff. But, um I'm just so curious why they were, and I'm sure probably this movie in particular was a huge part of that. Um, she is awesome, but I'm I'm curious, like, did they think she was going to be like the next Jodie Foster or something? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think that was the thinking, and I mean, I think you can kind of get it because you know, but like I said, between this and um, you know, uh, Days of Heaven, um, she kind of came out of came out of the gate really strong, you know. Yes, and even like sure. I, I I like her part in uh in the wanderers oh yeah um i actually got kind of <laughs> I, I i like chloe 70 but i was reading an interview with her when she was talking about her like a, attempts to rescue this film and she's talking about linda manns and she was like well linda manns only made like you know three movies uh two of them are masterpieces and then she also did like the wanderers and i was like hey, hey, hey come on the wanderers <laughs> I'd, I'd throw in that camp as well you know yeah, but uh yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I was, yeah, so I, in just <laughs> was, those three. <laughs> was Gummo one of the masterpieces? Because. <laughs> well, I don't, yeah, I don't. It'd be, it'd be weird to be like, she was also in this masterpiece where you can see me ripping duct tape off my nipples. <laughs> yeah. No, she was, she was only talking about her yeah, early ones. But, yeah, but early I know ones. she, but I know she said that when they worked together on Gummo, that's when she was like really excited because she got yeah. a chance to talk to her all about this film and everything. So, yeah. No, oh, this looks like an awesome movie. Yeah, I would love to see it. When was the last time you got to see it, Trev? Uh, a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember how I heard about it. I'm sure I probably came to... I think I actually did find it because I was watching The Wonders, and I liked her character in that, and I was like looking up the various actors in that, and I saw that poster that said the Johnny Rotten thing, and I was like, what? I, I'll watch any movie that's on the poster that says the character's yeah. in a Johnny Rotten, just because that makes me curious. And so, again, I had to kind of uh, track this movie down. And at that time, I just found it was on like someone had put it on YouTube. I, I don't know if it's still there or not, but yeah. that's how I watched it at the time. And so and then just recently I started reading the articles about it getting uh, this HD, uh, you know, resurrection. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it looks like it's successful and I hope there's some kind of tangible release so we can all see it. Because, yeah, they have some comparisons to like a standard def version and what they did with the restoration. It looks awesome. Mm-hmm. So was that the last movie on your list, Trev? It was, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought because I'm I'm on my last one. I'm like, damn, this went by fast. Mm-hmm. So this one is a movie like literally. There's a handful of movies, Trev, that I watched thirty like no exaggeration at all. I watched thirty or forty times when I was a kid on uh, cable. One of them was the Jim Carrey movie Once Bitten, and the other one I think I've probably seen the most in my life is this movie called Gotcha with uh, mm-hmm. Anthony Edwards and Linda Fiorentino. So this is a fun one on a lot of different levels, especially, I think, for a younger person like I was when I saw it. So the movie opens up, and this is what really captured my imagination. And just what a weird hook for a movie, really. But anyway, uh, the movie opens up with a bunch of guys on a on a crowded college campus. And like it looks like they're hunting each other, and they're pulling guns out, and they're going to shoot each other. But they're actually doing paintball. And, and they're playing this little game called Gotcha, where, like, I guess they kind of exchange their own student IDs. So, like, this week you're hunting this person, that person. It's pretty exciting the way they do it with this opening, you know, introduction and whatnot. And we kind of set up Anthony Edwards. He's kind of cool, but he's kind of a nerd. He doesn't get, like, a lot of women and stuff. But he kind of is a cool guy. He's got, like, a leather jacket. He's got feathered hair and stuff. And it's young Anthony Edwards, of course. Um, 
So basically, he's going with his uh, his best buddy. They're going on an Eastern Europe uh, kind of like uh, what do you call it? Like a backpacking trip. They're going to like all the cool places, um, you know, Berlin and all this kind of shit. And uh, basically. Let me see. I always guess this guy's name wrong because he has a couple names, but I really like the guy that's uh, that's with him in this movie. He was in The Nightmare on Elm Street. He got hanged by Freddy Krueger. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I know his real name that he likes to go by now was George Hsu, but he had... Let me find it. Nick Corey was his fake name. Like His, yeah. my, his Nightmare on Elm Street name is uh, Nick Corey, but his real name is George Hsu. So anyway, these two guys, and, and like George Hsu is like... Um, or Nick Corey, however you refer to him in your own mind. <laughs> He's like the stud teaching Anthony Edwards. Like, we're going to pick up all these girls, man. We're gonna, and, like, he, like he's really getting it in. He's, like, banging girls nonstop. So, finally, you know, he's he's more quiet, more reserved, whatever. Anthony Edwards goes out for coffee one night on his own. And he gets picked up by a, a very young, uh, you know, very boyish, short haircut Linda Fiorentino, and I have to say, this is probably the only movie I can think of where a woman with a really short haircut, like you know, really came. And I, I say this is like the like came off as like really like sexy to me. And like this movie is uh, that's not just me, like uh, my masturbatory ten year old whatever fantasies. Like this movie. Oh, I, obviously, you probably don't remember Trevor because you're a little bit younger than me. But like this movie, the advertising, and everything, this was sold as a sexy movie, Trev. Sexy, <laughs> like like all the trailers were all about how hot Linda Fiorentino was. It's with, funny because I'm looking at the poster now, and that's and I, I'm familiar with Gotcha, and that's not yeah. the poster I would have expected. Right, it's just right. all about her legs and like, yeah, yeah, yeah like like leg, her she's in the bed with her legs up, and he's standing there like wow, whatever. Because I, I think the DVD that I have, the cover, is, like, different. And this just got it. It's not out yet, um, but it just got announced for a blue, finally. And I, I'll be waiting. I'll probably end up pre-ordering that song, bitch. But uh, I just love this movie because, you know, this the, the sexy German girl. And, and, and they make a big deal how sexy her German accent is and all this kind of shit. So, you know, he has to go through this chase. And he goes through, like, the DDR. She talks him into helping him smuggle a package for some money and stuff. And, like, he knows there's some funny business and all that, but, like, you know, he, he like, he, like, whatever, he goes along with it because, you know, he's all into this, this this exciting foreign woman that's wrapping up. Well, obviously, it's it's a perfect Cold War movie because, you know, there's all kinds of spy shenanigans and evil Germans after them, chasing them all around, you know, tourist monuments, shooting at them, what. So, long story short, he's like, why is this movie called Gotcha, though? Such a terrible name for a movie about a kid getting caught up in some spy shit. Well, eventually, he makes his way back home to the U.S. Uh, it turns out he accidentally, uh, she hid some uh, top secret micro uh, fiche in his uh, film uh, little thing, the, the, the pictures he took. So, he doesn't realize he smuggled out some like top secret shit. It's basically a MacGuffin chase. And so, you know, now he's back in L.A. And uh, typical 80s style, like the, the, the whatever spies are now in L.A., the German spies are in L.A. trying to kill him. So he gets his boy Nick Corey to go get the homeboys. So it's like a great convoluted in chase where he's got like, you know, Latino gangsters on his side helping him out. They go through this whole elaborate chase. Uh, he finds out Linda Fiorentino is not even German. She works for like the CIA. She's just like some American woman that used the shit out of him. Um, and at the end, he goes back, he ends up on the college campus, 
and uh you know all the guys are like they got real guns but he ends up going back to his paintball shit but instead of paintball he steals some uh tranquilizer darts so it's like some cool shit where he's shooting people in the neck with tranquilizer darts obviously you know it all ends up in a great action climax on the campus of ucla where they filmed like totally 80s totally la totally cold war totally uh what you call a sexy film fatale movie this movie has so much damn shit like jam-packed in it like it's a perfect 80s time capsule of you know a fun uh you know there's some good humor in it too like there's one scene where he has to dress up as like a kind of new waver uh german pop uh star and dress up with his band to get through the border and shit some funny shit happens too but yeah i cannot highly recommend probably one of my if not my number one and definitely in the top three films that i've watched over and over and over even this dvd i've worn the shit out of it i've watched it so many times so i love it's funny because i i remember back when i was young i remember the the vibe of this film was there was always a lot probably because there was also like the gotcha toys and everything yeah and uh, I think a lot of there was in like some of the you know video covers, there's always this idea of like that's just the paintball movie, right? Like that's the movie about paintball. Exactly. And then like the I, I think a lot of young like people like me would be young and be like, well, I guess I'll watch that fun paintball movie. And suddenly you're like, what? I got there's like a lot of plot in this that I'm trying to follow. Where suddenly there's like a lot more happening than you expected. Because um, I I didn't I remember not realizing it was like a real spy movie uh, the first time yeah. I watched it. And it's yeah. such a weird thing because because later they had the whole gotcha line of things. So this is what. They don't mention the toys, but I mean they do briefly. But on Wikipedia it says Gotcha later spawned a game for the Nintendo Entertainment System for use with the yeah. zapper light gun called Gotcha the Sport, which I did play that game. A line of toys based on the game and film was released. And the the toys I don't I actually had one, but I picked it up way later at like a garage sale. Trev, it was like a kid friendly version of paintball. And I was mm-hmm. there was actually a store that like had like really old stock of toys and shit, so I was able to buy some of the cartridges. So the Gotcha thing, it was a cool toy. Like you would put this like round cylinder like it would open up like you would pull the gun open like it was like a good two-handed gun like it was a good size it wasn't just like a pistol so you put this little round cartridge in there trev and then like you kind of like pull it open and cock it like you would almost like a shotgun like every time you wanted to shoot and it would shoot these little look little tiny like real tiny about the size of your thumbnail i'd say these rubber darts that were like you know in these little uh paint capsules so like me and my buddies played around with it once or twice but unfortunately because they've been, I guess these little cartridges have been sitting on the shelf for a while. Like the the paint was pretty dried out, even though it would technically shoot out or whatever. But it's so weird that like a, a NAS video game, a line of child safe paintball products would all spawn from a movie where like technically they only play Gotcha the paintball game in the first like ten minutes of the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, everybody watch Gotcha if you haven't seen it yet. So. Have you seen that movie like any time recently, Trevor? Has it just been years and years? It's been it's been a long time, but uh, I mean, I, I probably within like the last ten years or so I've seen. Oh, okay, it, you know? okay, yeah. yeah. So you're, you're 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 familiar with it? Yeah, no. Like I said, like there was that initial like it not being what I thought it was going to be when I was younger. And then, it, and then, who knows? Maybe, maybe when I watched it last, it was because you talked about it or something. But I, I'm not, was, I know I talked about it, and it was like one of those ones before Corey bailed on the podcast, where like 
what's the next three movies we're going to do? Okay, Death Wish 3, gotcha, and this, and it just never happened. So Yeah, yeah, but I, I definitely, like, made a point. And that's what I mean, like, going back now and realizing it is a spy film. And, and then, yeah. like, and yeah, like, Linda Fiorentino was gorgeous back then. Okay. I mean, well, I'm not, not saying she's not now, but I'm just saying she was gorgeous in that, she in that probably, film. And, honestly, she probably is. I just, she you can't find her, dude. She's gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I remember, like, I don't know, I'm sure you did, too. I started to hear more and more about how she wasn't the easiest person in the world right. to work with. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it seems like uh, she's not someone you would necessarily cast if you want uh, a, an easy time making your film perhaps but but uh but yeah no it's it's i remember enjoy, i'm not sure i wouldn't say i like it as much as you but i had fun yeah. watching it last time yeah it's, it's a wild romp mm-hmm. so i mean that's pretty much all you can say man like like we really both kind of ran the gamut of genres and and even budget some of these movies were, were well known at one time sometimes some of these movies like you said like you like out of the blue it was obscure even when it was new you know what i mean mm-hmm yeah, and I think we both agreed that we could probably do this again because I think we were both having a hard yeah. time, you yeah. know, excluding some films. So oh, for sure, we could definitely do a, a, a definitely at least one more, maybe two more of '80s films, and there's definitely uh, we could do a, a show or two about for, forgotten '90s films. But uh, yeah. yeah, I had I had a blast doing this, uh, Trev. I want to thank you for um, for uh, bringing this topic up. To, I to me, it was a great idea. Um, you know, especially in these this day and age, like right now, like I've mostly I've been watching a little bit of new stuff, but I'm mostly watching a lot of old stuff. But I'm really discovering a lot of new shit, and it kind of blows me away. Like you know me, Trev, as much of an '80s aficionado, hardcore, whatever I am, like you can still discover new shit. Like it's shocking. Well, that's that's the fun thing, and I mean that's true. Like there was so much crazy variety in the '80s, and uh, I I got to give it up to in particular like. Um, uh, like Amazon Prime has thrown like a lot of just kind of like random stuff up that you yeah. you haven't heard of, and you can you can find a lot of cool things on there. Um, but yeah, I've, I like I agree with you. Like I've been kind of I've been a kind of a more nostalgia kick myself recently. Yeah. And discovering things, uh, you know, just geez, the other night on uh, Amazon, I watched uh, Vendetta, like a '80s like women in prison movie that I'd never seen before. Nice. Um, yeah, and then there was a couple other films I watched, thinking maybe I'd talk about them on this, and decided to just tuck them in my back pocket for next time. But yeah, it's it's. I think our whole point was there's so many, you know, there's everyone knows Ghostbusters and Back to the Future and Goonies and stuff, right. and so it's nice to go back and be like, when we were kids, man, we went to that video store and those shelves were just packed of stuff. Yeah. And so and then now you go into these lists and these those covers like come like roaring back to the your, your memory and. It's fun to be like, well, let's let's give some uh, extra love to those, the ones that have been forgotten. So, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I really I'm really uh, pleased where we're at right now uh, in uh, whatever you want to call this, the twilight, the whatever physical media. It's pretty much blown me away that how some of these are getting new releases, new remasters, like for the first time in 30, 40 years. So it is it is a good time to sit back and reflect because some of these flicks are they're going to be available now for a limited time in these pristine editions. And, uh, you know, like the case of I Madman, it's like, man, it's like it sucks because you can't buy everything at once. But at the same time, like some of this shit is really, really comes and really goes quick. So, yeah, mm-hmm. always good to keep your head up. Yeah, it is. It is interesting at a time when you know every article about physical media is about how it's dying. But meanwhile, yeah. like you said, there's all these labels putting out the most obscure stuff possible. Yeah. Physical yeah. media, like that's the that's the strange irony. But I think it is because the the 
the people left buying physical media are the people like us who want those like weird, obscure things we remember from when we were younger. Because ultimately, you don't need to own the Avengers because it's right. you're never going to be you're always going to be able to find it. But exactly. you want to get your hands on to the movies you love because these aren't going to pop up on Netflix uh, as as often. So exactly, and I, I think that was and then obviously there still are some little good few reservoirs here and there in the streaming world of uh, of where you can find these things. But yeah, like like you know, with what streaming was ten years ago, I really thought it was going to be this treasure trove of like stocked of everything obscure. And it turns mm-hmm. out, no, it's actually the most obscure shit now is coming out of physical media sometimes. So yeah, you never know. So Trev, I want to thank you for not only joining me for coming up with the awesome, cool uh, topic, obviously. And as always, we always got to direct our fans, especially our most. Uh, x-rated fans to go check out what podcast uh, that'd be uh, days of future podcast my show all about the x-men with my buddy joe uh we've been on a little bit of a forced uh quarantine uh hiatus but we're just about ready to get ramping back up and i'll also give a little shout out to um it's not either of our podcasts but our our buddies uh matt and bird have their podcast uh, kaiju transmissions oh yeah and i recently recorded an episode with them that i'm very happy with and very proud of where we went through the entire starship troopers franchise holy shit and i so gotta I, listen I, to that yeah so i'll tell people to check that one out because like i that was another one where i pitched it to them because i was a, i'm a very big advocate for everyone talks about the first starship troopers which i do i do love uh we all loved it but I also wanted to remind people that there's a whole franchise there. And I think those sequels are a little uh, undervalued a little bit. So we uh, we talked about the whole thing, the whole shebang. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to, to get I discovered it like literally like the last day of the month that it was playing. So I wasn't able to like record it and get the whole thing. But did you guys talk about that new uh, animated sequel they did? Yeah, there's two of those. We 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 watched both of them and, and talked about both of them. And uh, I uh, I'll just I I don't spoil our overall thoughts, but I'll say yeah. at this point there are five Starship Troopers films, including two animated ones, and I I don't hate any of them. I think they all have yeah. uh, a value to them. So yeah, I love Starship Troopers, man. You know, it, it's kind of a shame that the the original movie couldn't be a hit when it came out, but in a weird way, I'm kind of glad the afterlife that it's had. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's what well, it has that cool like Tremors afterlife, right? Where they're yeah. able to just make these like lower budget entries that have very little pressure on them, and can just be kind of these like fun little B movies. So, yeah, so yeah. Def- definitely check out uh, Days of uh, Future podcast and check out Kaiju Transmissions. And just curious, Trev, because like, like I like I'm very proud that here on the Movie Graveyard that we're about hit hit our 80th episode. But uh, how many do you guys have X Men? It's got to be in the hundreds by now, right? uh yeah we're in the hundreds let's see uh 100 uh, right now as we're recording this we have 127 episodes damn and and you guys started way later than this show did so that's probably what 120 over what four years three and a half years five years at this point five years? okay damn you guys are awesome and and, and uh, obviously like you said because uh, you know the whole world's gone crazy but it, mm-hmm. but you guys have really impressed me with how you've kept up your recording schedule all these years. It's, it's really it's really commendable. So I take my hat off to you guys. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's it. Obviously, we're happy you guys could join us and you know go down memory lane with me and Trev on these movies. Trev, I know you'll be back. Uh, we got some things on the on the boiler that we're. Mm-hmm. Uh, kicking around so uh, you'll be back real soon i'm sure yeah there's little there's little easter eggs in this episode we, <laughs> if you we, listen we talk, hard enough if you play yeah. a drinking game 
And if you hear something more than three times, <laughs> it could be a hint. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, once again, Trev, thank you, man. And uh, we'll see all you crazy retro movie lovers real soon next time in the movie graveyard. See ya. You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com.